Let's open our Bibles, though, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, the, the last Sunday of the year or the first Sunday of the year, just depending on how things fall. We always have a message on the local church, uh, on, on, uh, on some aspect of the local church. And so that is, that is this morning uh, going to be our focus, the local church. As you are able, let's stand together one more time in honor of the word of the Lord. Again, we don't do this out of empty ritual. Uh, we don't do, something, do this because uh, we get more merit points by standing more often. We stand when we read the word of the Lord to, to remind ourselves in a physical, tangible way that, that the authority in this church rests with God's word. That this is the, the living word of the sovereign God of all the universe. And so we stand to remind ourselves to not take that lightly. Uh, and so we'll read together just, just two verses this morning. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, hear now the word of the Lord. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, that by your spirit speaking through your word, we hear the voice of our God. We come to know our God, that, that by your spirit's working through your word, that we are transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light, that we are brought even from death into life. And we pray, God, that by that same spirit, through that same word this morning, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the so-called organized church has never been more out of fashion than it is right now. It's become a very popular thing for, for even Christians to reject the church, some claiming that, that it's more spiritual even to reject the organized church. They'll say, oh, I like Jesus just fine. And sure, I'm a Christian, but the organized church, no, that's not, that's not for me. And, and some of the best-selling authors of Christian books in our Christian bookstores have taken this route. Some, some of the most popular Christian speakers and Christian conferences, Christian recording artists, they, they've gone this route. That, that, that it is a more spiritual and a better thing to abandon the organized church than it is to give ourselves to it. We all know the popular phrase, maybe you've said it at some point in your life, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And what's more, you for sure don't have to be a member of a church to be a Christian. That's probably true. It's, it's possibly true in some cases. But what's also true is this. You will not be a healthy Christian. You will not. You cannot. You are certainly not being an obedient one. Charles Spurgeon tells once of a, of a conversation he had with a man. He was encouraging this man to join the church, to become a member of the church. And the man said this, I've given myself to the Lord. 
but I do not intend to give myself to the church. And Spurgeon said, why not? The man said, well, because I can be a Christian without it. Spurgeon said this, are you quite sure about that? You think you can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient? What is a brick made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you it's just as good of a brick laying on the ground in the dirt as it is to be part of a house. It's just, it's a good for nothing brick. Sir, you are living contrary to your purpose, to the life which Christ would have you live, and there will be much blame and injury to you for doing so. Spurgeon sort of sets the, the theme for us in that statement. Well, one of my main goals today is just to show us how much Christ actually cares about his church. How, how much God loves the church. And how much of a blessing the local church is to us. And not only is it a blessing to us, but to show us something of the serious consequences for rejecting that blessing, that gift from God. If, if Maple Grove is to be a church that brings glory to God, our commitment to our assembling together for worship must be central to our lives as a church. And, and this passage that we read, these, these couple of verses, if we had time, we'd look even further into the context and, and all that's said there. But this passage describes for us not only the necessity, but the blessing of our regular coming together, doing what we're doing right now as the church on the Lord's day. And it also provides for us not just a, a picture in the positive of the blessing, but it serves as a much needed rebuke, a, a loving rebuke to be sure, but a rebuke to, to the growing numbers of professing Christians who think it is entirely possible for them to make the claim that they are following Christ while refusing to commit themselves to his church. Many today, certainly unbelievers, but professing believers as well, question the necessity of the local church. Question the relevance or the importance of the local church. Our, our generation has created a new category of person, one that biblical and historical Christianity has never conceived of, one that John Stott called a grotesque anomaly. That new creation is this. It is the so-called unchurched Christian. There's a growing trend among certain Christians to leave the local church, or at least to, to de-emphasize it. They, 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 they see it as something that is, is corrupt. They see it as something that is irrelevant to their lives. They see it as something that's a, it's an add-on from the side. Or perhaps they see themselves as too busy with true kingdom work to be involved in the local church. The, the organized church is simply too compromised for them. The church just simply isn't doing the active kingdom work that it should be doing. Which, by the way, when someone says that, what they mean is exactly the thing I'm doing it and exactly the way I'm doing it. It's an incredibly arrogant attitude. It is misguided at best. And it needs to be said clearly, those who make that claim are just not trustworthy spiritual leaders. They're simply... Not, And we need to know that because many of our popular Christian authors are making these claims. 
Many of our popular Christian musicians are making these claims. Many who are, who are greatly involved in evangelism even are making these claims. And it doesn't matter who the person is or what their history is. They could be deeply involved in evangelism every single week or they could be a former pastor. But if they are making these claims that the local church is simply not necessary for them, they are not a trustworthy spiritual guide. Not only is this an individual who believes that they no longer need anyone else to assist them in their discipleship, they've got it on their own between them and God. They also believe they don't need to be accountable to anyone else. They can be a complete free agent. They don't believe they need to be under the authority of God-ordained pastors and elders. They don't believe that they need to be united in any kind of vital way with other believers. And perhaps worst of all is this. They will persist in being unhealthy, in a state of, of, of unhealthiness as a Christian. They will not be growing or using their gifts to glorify the Lord. They're walking in disobedience, but they may be able to eke out their existence holding on to their faith, even persisting in their disobedience. But, but know this, their disobedience to Christ in this area will reap a disastrous harvest among their children and grandchildren. Because a major part of ordering our lives and our families according to the word of God involves a vital, visible commitment to a specific local church, a specific group of people in a specific place. And so the answer to compromise in the church and the answer to complacency in the church, and as we look at the church uh, uh, across the spectrum here in the United States and even in our community, it's not hard for any of us to point out compromise and complacency. We all know it's there and we all see it. The answer is not to arrogantly and sinfully abandon the local church. It's to commit ourselves to reformation within the church. It's to commit ourselves to faithfulness. First, we do that individually by rightly ordering our lives and our families according to God's word. And then with the plank removed from our own eye, we can be humble agents of reformation within Christ's Church, not, not a reformation according to style, not a reformation according to preference, not a, certainly not a reformation according to the shifting winds of our culture, which is the blind leading the blind, not a reformation according to our favorite author or our favorite podcaster, our favorite celebrity preacher, but according to the unchanging truth of Scripture. And so the, the historic position of Christianity can be summed up by a third century church father, Cyprian, who said this, outside the church, there's no salvation. In other words, the, the biblical answer to the question, who needs the church is this? Well, whoever wants to be saved, whoever wants to be a Christian, that's who needs the church. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that church membership saves us. It doesn't. Church attendance and participation does not save us. God saves us. As we sang together this morning, as we prayed together this morning, God saves us from the condemnation our sin deserves by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And it is certainly true that a person can faithfully attend church every Sunday, even be a member of the church, even be incredibly active and not actually be a Christian. All of that's true. But God has made the church 
the steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul calls the church in 1 Timothy 3.15, the pillar and the buttress of truth. One pastor, Brandon Scalf, says, men who refuse to submit to a local church have set themselves up as the pillar and buttress of truth. And in doing so, reject God and his plan of sanctification for his people and have flung their families into certain ruin. You don't get Christ while rejecting his bride. And all the husbands in here say, amen. If you scorn and despise my wife, guess what? You don't get to then call me your friend. We don't have a good relationship or even a cordial one. If, if you scorn and despise my wife. We understand that on a human level. Do we think that, that Christ cares less for the church for whom he died? <coughs> so membership in the local church. Again, hear, hear me say this clearly. It is not a requirement for salvation. But it would be virtually impossible for a person to be a healthy, growing, fruitful Christian without being a participating member of a local church. Now, before any of your inner lawyers start in and you start thinking of these rare cases of someone who is bound to a bed and simply can't get out, yes and amen. Praise God for his grace. But would we all agree those are rare cases? That's not what most people are dealing with when we consider these things. So why is it so important? Why is it virtually impossible to be a healthy, growing, fruitful Christian apart from a vital connection to a local church? First of all, because it's required by God. We shouldn't need anything else. We're not free to just pick and choose God's commandments to us and do as we see fit. But also it's this. None of God's requirements are arbitrary. God just didn't come up with a list of do these things and don't do these things and you just picked them at random and, the, and none of it matters. This is not an arbitrary requirement. Our gathering together as the body of Christ is a means of God's grace to us. It is full of blessing. It is full of encouragement. Verse 24, Paul says, or the author of Hebrews says this. I mean, Paul said it. And Luke transcribed the sermon. That's what's going on here. Right, Brad? Just a clear of the throat is all. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Our, our unity as Christians has an internal component and an external component. In, internally, we are called to consider one another. This, this verb, consider, it literally means to think from up to down. It's to take it all in, to, to contemplate, to, to understand closely. It's the same word the author of Hebrews uses in, in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. In other words, every Christian ought to, to set their mind on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 10 here, as we just read, he says Christians are also to set our minds on one another. So we fix our minds on Christ and we fix our minds on one another. What's more, this verb, consider, grammatically in the Greek denotes a continual, a re repeated action. Let us constantly consider 
one another. So just as we're to always be thinking about Jesus, we are to always be thinking about each other. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, the Apostle John says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So John says, here's one of the ways we know. Here's one of our assurances of salvation. All Christians, all of those who have truly been brought from death to life, love God's people. All genuine Christians love God's people. And real love means you want to be with those people. But that's what love means. If we love people, we want to be with them. And so this biblical emphasis brings a direct rebuke to those who would say, well, I've got lots of good Christian books. I can watch preachers on my computer or on TV. I can listen to preaching on podcasts. That's just as good. Why would I need to be there? Well, is it? Is it just as good? Is it an acceptable alternative? The biblical answer to that is a resounding, in all capital letters, with five exclamation points, no. No, it is not just as good. No, it is not an acceptable alternative. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things are helpful. We have have been blessed by God to live in an age. You can literally listen to the best preachers who are alive in the world today anytime you want. It's incredible. What, What an amazing time to be alive. These are wonderful things. We have access to all the good books. We got access to all of it. We we make use of that. Uh, This service is going out live right now because we have some people that can't be here with us. So these are good things. They're not bad things, but they're just supplements to what we're receiving as a participating member of a local church. And when these supplements become substitutes for corporate worship, they inevitably lead to a corrupted worship of God because our fellowship with God can never be self-centered. It can never terminate on us. What works for me? Proverbs 18, verse 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own. He breaks out against all sound judgment. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Philippians 2, verse 4, let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Another pastor, Matt Smehurst, says the Apostle Paul, in his epistles, wrote the phrase, our Lord, 53 times, and only wrote the phrase, my Lord, one time. Christianity is communal. You are not a free agent. Invest in your local church family. So our our unity as Christians has both an internal and an external component. Internally, we consider, we set our minds on our brothers and sisters. Externally, we gather together regularly for worship and for our mutual benefit to encourage one another and to be encouraged by one another. So after commanding us to consider one another continually in verse 24... We're told why we should do this. We're told what our thoughts should focus on. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is what the church should be marked by. Love and good works. Those things are not automatic. 
We don't just slide into those things. They don't, they, 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 we're not always good at it. We're not even always good at, at stirring one another up to love and good works. But every single Christian is called to these things, to love and good works. And it is simply not possible to achieve that on our own. We need each other. You, you need to stir up love and good works in other people. And you need other people to stir up love and good works in you. King James translates it provoke. New American Standard says stimulate. The NIV says to spur on. The Greek word is where we get our English term paroxysm, which is a sudden outbreak of a, of a sickness or a spasm. That's the picture here. It's, it's usually this word has a negative connotation when it is used, <coughs> excuse me, in the Greek. Something like irritation. Something like exasperation. The, the only other time this word's used in the New Testament, it's actually used that way. It's used negatively. It's used to explain this major dispute that happened between Paul and Barnabas that caused them to part ways from one another. In Acts chapter 15, verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement. That's the word. So that they separated from each other. I don't think as, as we're being instructed here by the author of Hebrews, I don't think we should ignore that sort of negative connotation to the word. We are called, if need be, to irritate one another to love and good works. As Proverbs 27 verse 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. How does a chef, those of you who like to cook a lot and you've got your, your good knives... Guys, you like to barbecue and you got to have the right knives for doing it. How do you sharpen them? You just gently talk to them. You never, make sure you never hurt their feelings. You caress them and pamper them. No, you don't. You sharpen iron with another piece of iron, creating friction to grind it to a sharpened edge. Likewise, your true friends, the people who really love you, are not going to be yes men. They're not going to co-sign your every idea or your every action. They're the ones who, because they love you, are going to tell you the truth. And they're going to tell you what you need to hear because they want to help you. They want to help you become better. So if you're doing something self-destructive, they're not going to go, let me just affirm you in this. What you're doing is good. No, not if they love you, they won't. That will involve times where, yes, they put their arm around your shoulder and they encourage you and they tell you you're doing great. And then there'll be times where they put a scolding finger in your chest and they tell you to knock it off. They tell you you're doing the wrong things. And we need both. We need comforting love and we need confronting love. We need to be with brothers and sisters in Christ who love us enough to stir us up to love and good works. And you, Christian, are commanded to love others that way too. So, so the question's not, often people ask the question, well, what am I really missing if I'm not in church? If I'm not an active part of, of the local church, or even on any given Sunday morning, and we think of our local church and we say, if I'm not there, am I really missing that much? And I would just submit to you, that's not the biblical question. The question is this. What is the church missing because I'm not there? 
The biblical imagery is the church as body, the body of Christ. Christian, you are a part of that body with a vital role to play. How are you using your gifts for the health of the body? You understand that's what they've been given to you for. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 says they're given to you for the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This verse doesn't technically command us to go to church. It commands us not to forsake the assembling with other Christians. But in saying that, the author of Hebrews is assuming something. He's assuming a previously established commitment to corporate worship. So he tells us, don't forsake it. Don't, don't forsake the meeting together. He says in verse 25, not neglecting. That, that word's emphatic. It means to totally abandon, to utterly forsake. It's the same word used in, in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Apostle Paul used it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, when he says of himself, I am persecuted, but not forsaken. It's used again in Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 5. And the promise of God that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so here in verse 25, we're told, don't forsake, don't abandon, don't desert the gathering together of the church. And he says, for some, this has already become the habit. So some people who profess faith in Jesus had already developed the habit. They'd already developed the custom of only showing up on occasion. They were neglecting to, to make regular attendance and participation in corporate worship of the church each Lord's Day a priority in their lives. He says it's the habit of some, the ethos, the, the custom. It's, it's definitional. It's who you are. It's, it's your character. You, you don't cultivate a habit overnight. A habit takes time. But bad habits, if we, if we look at any of us and the bad habits we have in our lives, and we go, how did I get here? How did I get to the place where I, this is my habitual thing now? Why, why can't I shake it? Why are bad habits so hard to break? Well, it's because bad habits happen unintentionally. We just end up doing the same thing over and over again. And really... Really what it is, is they come because we are not living intentionally. We are living unintentionally. We don't get up each day and have a plan for what we're going to do or how we're going to live or what we're going to do. We drift through life. We take things as they come without forethought, without preparation, without prioritizing the many things that are competing for our time and for our allegiance, it is not difficult for any of us to develop a habit of neglect when it comes to participation in the life of the local church. I've been around the local church long enough to see that none of us are exempt from this. That this is a real and, and clear threat to any of us. It, you miss one Sunday because you were sick. The next week you, ha you have plans that take you out of town. 
Maybe you're in church on the third week, but the fourth week you've got some, some friends coming over and you need to get the house ready for them when they're going to be there. Before you know it, you have established a pattern in your life where corporate worship is falling lower and lower and lower and lower on your list of actual priorities in your life. You wouldn't admit that. You wouldn't even admit it to yourself. But when you examine your calendar in your life, you see it's actually falling lower and lower and lower and lower. And all of a sudden, any reason's a good reason not to come and worship with God's people. In fact, it's kind of hard now. It's kind of hard to do it. Eventually, over time, this feels normal. And all of a sudden, a few years have gone by and you find yourself with no real commitment to the local church whatsoever. And maybe the church that you're a member of, you hardly know anybody there. So the author of Hebrews, in the God-inspired language he uses, is getting right to the point. He's not sugarcoating anything. He calls that kind of habit a forsaking, an abandonment. You hear the weight of that. It's, it's sinful, in other words. It will lead to disaster spiritually. Look again at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Notice here the contrast that he sets up. It's not between showing up for church and not showing up for church. It's between neglecting the meeting and encouraging one another. That's what he sets up. This text is a call for more than attending meetings. It's more, he's not getting at every time the church doors are unlocked, you gotta be there. That's not the point. This is a call for active participation in the life of the local church. That's the call. And so you could show up for corporate worship week after week after week, faithfully, never ever missing, but do so as a consumer and not as a participant. And you're guilty of the very thing he's warning of here. Unfortunately, many Christians approach the church like they're hitchhikers. Well, what do hitchhikers do? They They stand by the side of the road and they don't write this on their sign. It would be far too many words. But they say, I want you to buy the car. I want you to pay for the gas. I want you to do all the maintenance. I would like you to pay the insurance. I'll just ride along. If you have an accident, I'll probably sue you. If you get a speeding ticket, you're on your own. That's you. That's not me. That's the way many people treat the church. You worship, you volunteer, you serve. If you do things to my liking, I'll come along for the ride. Don't expect anything from me. If I don't like anything, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to criticize you. I'm going to complain. I'm going to talk about it. And I'll probably eventually just leave you and find a ride I like better. Oh, friends, we are called to so much more. We are called to so much better than that. God wants you to commit to a local church. That is to a local body of believers because it is good for you. And it is good for them to have you. It's a gift of God's grace to you to place you in a local body. And you are meant to be a gift of God's grace 
to all the other believers in that local body. Look one more time at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So some might think that gathering together every Sunday, oh, that seems like a bit much. Seems like overkill, like more than we need. Let me just tell you, we actually need as much as we can possibly get coming together as the church to worship the Lord together. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, it says this, Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christian, sin wants to have your heart. It wants to harden your heart. And if you let it, it will do it. One of the means by which God keeps his people One of the means by which God guards the hearts of his people is that he has given us each other. It's one of the means he he has given to to strengthen us, to encourage us, to to exhort us to godliness. The author of Hebrews says, this is all the more important in light of what he calls the day. The day that's drawing near. Many commentators say the day he's talking about is the second coming of Christ. I think that's true. In the the book of Hebrews, he's often speaking of the day. The day of the Lord. But I think that's not the only thing he's thinking about. Hebrews is a a letter written to Jewish Christians in the mid-60s AD. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're being tempted to turn back to Judaism... And he's taking great lengths in this sermon to to show in Christ that that old way of life with its sacrifices is over. That Jesus has established a new covenant in his blood. That he alone is the once for all sacrifice for sin. The problem is the Jews had rejected him. They were calling the Christians to, to reject him as well and to return to Judaism. And so there was about to come... A judgment from God on them. The Lord Jesus was going to come in judgment. Hebrews was written just a few years before Jerusalem fell. When when the Roman general Titus captured and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. It was a terrible event. A catastrophic event. A history changing event. Scripture often speaks of this coming event in apocalyptic terms. Even referencing it as the coming of Christ in judgment. I think perhaps pictured here in the day. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's judgment. It it uses such terms that it sounds like the end of all history. But for those who received the, the original hearers of Hebrews. This event's only a couple years away. This judgment from Christ. For those with discernment, surely the signs of this judgment were clear. The continued refusal of the Jewish nation to repent. 
for their corruption, their corruption of the faith given to them in the Old Testament scriptures, for their rejecting of Jesus in favor of their own apostate version of Judaism, even worse, for their murder of Jesus. It's clear judgment is about to be unleashed on Israel. And so this, this provides yet another motivation for genuine Christians to remain faithful. If they're going to persevere through this cataclysmic judgment that is coming, they're going to need each other. If they're going to resist the temptation to avoid persecution by returning to Judaism and rejecting Jesus, they need to encourage one another. They need to provoke one another to love and good works. And as we look around at the world today, as we look at, at the United States of America, with its increasing hostility towards true biblical Christianity, we should take these words to heart. It is not hard for us to see the rapidly decreasing decay of our society morally and spiritually and even politically. The calling of evil good and the calling of good evil. It is becoming increasingly countercultural to simply be a biblical Christian, even among those who call themselves Christian. Finding an excuse to bail out on faithfulness to the Word of God, to, to make compromises, to, to bow our knee to the demands and the pressures of the culture are only growing stronger and stronger and will only continue to grow stronger and stronger. We desperately need each other. We should be together as much as possible to exhort and encourage and admonish one another to remain faithful. Christian, the church is God's gift to you. In this world of trouble, in this world of trial, one pastor says it like this. Perseverance is a community project. How do, we, how do we persevere in the faith? How do we make it to the finish line? Well, we don't do it on our own. It's a community project. And the church is a means of God's grace to you. It is a means that God uses to keep you so you won't fail. To keep you persevering in the faith so that you will reach the promised finish line. And the most important thing we do as a church is what we're doing right now. We gather together on the Lord's day for worship. That is the central centerpiece, most important thing that the church of Jesus Christ does. And so don't forsake the assembling together for corporate worship. Some Sundays you will come in filled with excitement. You can't wait. You wake up on Sunday morning and you can't wait. To come be with God's people. And not just, not just this broad category of God's people. These people. These people. There are some Sunday mornings I stand up here as we begin to sing. And I look at the, the faces of, of the members of this church. And I just think I wouldn't want to be anywhere else with anyone else. What a, what a gift this is. Sometimes it's like that. Other times you're limping in. You barely made it. I don't think my bed ever feels as good as it does at six, from about 6.30 to 6.50 a.m. on a Sunday morning. I'm like, this just turned into paradise. I don't understand. It would be foolish. Would I? 
Would I be scorning God's gift to get out of this bed? You feel beaten down by the world. You feel exhausted. You're not feeling particularly, particularly spiritual. And you're not really in the mood for it. You can know this. Either way. God's at work here. God's at work here. Why do we keep the kids in the service on a Sunday morning when there's some bald guy standing up front saying things that fly over their head for the most part? Because we believe that something supernatural is happening. Something supernatural is happening when God's people gather together. It's something we can't get anywhere else and in any other way. There's no other gathering of Christians that can replicate this right here. No conference, no event, certainly nothing that we stream online. Nothing can replicate the gathering of the local church under the authority of the living word of God. Something supernatural is happening. God is at work here. What happens when the church gathers is supernatural. God is at work in it, and it is a means of his grace to us. It is for our joy, and it is for our good. The commands of God are not arbitrary. He who made us, he who sustains us, knows us, and knows what we need. And he has given us all that we need. Let me close with the words of Charles Spurgeon again. It's always a good idea to just give Charles Spurgeon the final word. And I'll do that this morning. He says this, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church until I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I would have ruined it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still, Imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on earth? If it's right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it's right for everyone. And the testimony of God would be lost to the world. Oh, it's for our good. It's for our good and it is for our joy. And what a kindness of God. What a kindness of God to place the, the lonely in families. What, what a kindness of God to surround us with his people. What a kindness of God to, to give to us his grace again and again and again through his word, by his spirit and through his people. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, we acknowledge this, this word is challenging because it, it, it challenges us not, not just about what we, what we do and don't do with our bodies, whether we show up or don't show up, but we are called to so much more. We are called to, to an active life in the family of God, an active participation in the body of Christ as members of that body, an active role in using our gifts to bring glory to you, and to strengthen and encourage your people. I pray, Lord, for each one of us, each one of us that belong to you, that we would be challenged, that we would be challenged by this, that we would be challenged to examine ourselves and, and see, Lord, how we are using our gifts, 
using the time that you have given us, using all that you've entrusted into our hands to, to bring glory to your name and to build your church and to, to strengthen those believers that you have called us to, to be intimately connected with. I pray for those, Lord, that may be in this room that are not vitally connected to a church. They, they've trusted in Christ. They, they, they consider themselves Christians and they profess a faith in Christ. And yet for whatever reason, in this moment in their life, they're not vitally connected to a local church. I pray, Lord, that you would provide an avenue for that in short order for them. Lord, cause them to, to find the right church, to be connected to that church, and to commit to it and to thrive and to grow. I pray, Lord, that they would be a blessing and that they would be blessed and their obedience to you in this. And I pray, Lord, for those who don't know you, those who, who come to a, to a church service and, and their hearts are far from you. They're not one of your own. They've not surrendered their heart to you. And they, they hear all this scripture read and this singing and this praying and this talk of the, the church and it all feels so foreign to them. I pray, Lord, by your spirit, you, this, this, this Holy Spirit that you have caused to indwell your people, this Holy Spirit who inspired the, the words of Scripture that we have read together this morning, I pray, Lord, by that same Spirit, you would give sight to their eyes, lift their eyes to behold Christ. Show them their great need for salvation. Shows them the greatness of you, our God the greatness of your power to save. Show them, Lord, your, your holiness and your righteousness and their need to be reconciled to you. Lord, in your kindness, I pray that you would make them your own. Lord, I do pray for us as a church that we would have true unity, true fellowship with one another. I pray, Lord, that we would be marked by love for you and love for one another, and that we would be marked by good works that bear much fruit for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.